Welcome to Episode 2 of The Thing You Do, a podcast about interesting jobs and the people who do them. I'm your host, Tammy, and today's guest has a job that I didn't even know existed until just a couple of weeks ago. She's what is sometimes referred to as a death doula. I don't know about you, but the first time I heard that, I thought of a movie title for a really bad horror flick. But it's actually nothing like that. Actually, Today's guest has a career that helps bring meaning and purpose and even beauty to the last few chapters of her clients' lives. So I'm Shelby Carillon, and I'm an end-of-life doula. Okay, wow, an end-of-life doula. That's a new one for me. So I want you to imagine, Shelby, that you and I are standing in line at a coffee shop, (laughs) and we've just ordered our drinks. I'm getting a latte. What are you getting? Oh, I'm a hot tea girl. Okay, okay. Or a cappuccino, if I have a good mug, but it's really hard to find a good mug. I I can't do like a styrofoam cup, so. Okay, so we're (laughs) waiting for our latte and hot tea to be made, and we've just struck up this conversation. You've just told me that you're an end-of-life doula, and I say, a what? Oh, yes. What? So before our drinks are made... Shelby, tell me about the thing you do. So a lot of times when that happens, which is more times than not, I start with, are you familiar with what a birthing doula is or what a birthing doula does? So that's kind of springboards me off on what the person's baseline understanding of even that word is. And so if I speak with someone who says, oh yeah, I know what a birthing doula is. So a lot of times I caveat with, well, as a birthing doula supports the laboring mother and their partner in to birth a, a life into this world, I am with the dying and I am with them and their collective family and friends. And I support that journey because I believe as we labor into life, we labor out of life. And our culture doesn't know how to labor death anymore. It used to. It was something that we all did, and for numerous reasons, it was taken from us over the last 100, 150 years. And so my goal is to give that back to our collective humanity, to teach people how to labor death with their loved one. Wow. Okay. Well, you did it. They just called our names. So there you go. <laughs> Good job. You did it just <laughs> it, in it's time. It's been a very long time to refine that elevator speech. I used to say, more like... <laughs> I had to take 40 floors. Now my elevator speech is like maybe like a 10-story floor elevator speech. Well, it's a lot. I mean, I'll give you that. There's a lot to explain there. So I definitely, I think it's fair that it takes a little bit. But you've done a good job putting it into a, as much of a nutshell as you can. So how in the world did you end up doing doing this? How did you end up as an end-of-life doula? So my background is in nursing, more specifically um, neuroscience, neurotrauma, ICU nursing. So I've been doing that for over two decades. And about 10 years ago, as a nurse, I really saw how we were doing death so poorly in our culture. Now, the deaths I was seeing was in the ICU. So that certainly is a subset that I was experiencing. But even in the ICU, people were coming in with chronic illness and let's say having a, a, a major stroke and the family was completely unprepared and this person had been ill for, if not years, decades. So I saw, I saw what happened when families don't talk about it, when families don't acknowledge it. And every now and then I'd see it be done in a different light where families acknowledged it. And I saw what that looked and felt like. And I said, everybody should have this, or at least the ability to have this if they wanted it. But I don't think we 
I don't think we know what we don't know anymore. So I just started reading voraciously. I just read any and every book about death and dying, grief that I could, because I had never heard of a death doula. Some people I know in Canada have been calling them death midwives. That was a foreign word to me at the time. But in this kind of literature review I was doing, that's when I came upon um, a death doula. And I read an article of uh, uh, Sarah Kerr, who was in Canada. And it was everything. I was like, yes, this is this is what can help. This is what can help us go back to support the dying process again. So from then on, I started blogging. I started doing a lot of just kind of journaling on my own, trying to understand for me what an end-of-life doula or a death doula is and how I see myself fitting into that picture. And inevitably, people would say, well, is there special training? Do you have to go to special school for this? You know, my answer at the time is, well, I'm a, I'm a human being, which is first and foremost, you know, we're meeting humanity with humanity. Um, and then, you know, 22 years of nursing and sitting with the dying. But I understood I needed a little bit more training, especially when it came to the grief part, because my specialty had been caring for people who were ill or um, in a trauma situation through their death. But I didn't see and know much past that. So that's when I found ANELDA, which is the International End-of-Life Doula Association, and they uh, have doula trainings. And so I attended a doula training and fell even more in love with it and understood it on a deeper level. I, I understood what needed to be done, but a lot of the philosophy behind it is what I learned from the training. And then I just kind of threw myself out there. I published my blogs about, again, my mission, my vision, the definition of an end-of-life doula that I saw. And within a week, it was on my social media page and a friend of a friend, I didn't know this family, um, hired me. And, you know, the cliche, the proverbial of the rest is history. That was five years ago. And, you know, I originally started it not knowing if this was a thing. I knew it was important for me to have a voice to tell people that you can do death differently if you want, but I didn't know if anybody, if it would fall on deaf ears, but it turns out that a lot of people do, they want to experience it differently, or they see the cracks in how we're doing it as a culture right now. You know, I, <laughs> I say that the baby boomers were fantastic, an amazing generation who 30 and 40 years ago saw how we birthed and said, yeah, this is, this is not a medical experience. Right. Uh, it, I might want some medical support, but my body knows what to do. And they, I, I give them and tip my hat to them. They reclaimed birthing to what it is now and hopefully what it continues to evolve into. And so it's that generation now that are looking at the end of the, their lives and doing the same thing. They're looking at how we treat dying in our culture and say, that's just not how I want to have it done. I might want certainly medical support, but there's more to it. And they are the ones who are starting to change how we die in our culture. So it is, a, at least as far as our current society and culture, a relatively new thing. Um, obviously, if you go to other cultures or go back long enough in our culture, it's not so new. But um, it's different. It's different from hospice, which is more, I guess, of a medical support to someone who's dying. But what are some of the things that you do to help people who are dying and their families? Tammy, that's a great question. I'm going to jump to the beginning of it as far as hospice, because I do want to tip my hat 
There are wonderful social workers and chaplains and hospice in hospices and that do great jobs, not just doing the medical support of, of dying. But the problem is, you know, in hospice, and I just learned this in all the this reading I was doing, you know, it, hospice is relatively new. It only really came over in the late 60s, really early 70s. And it has changed as it has come under the bureaucracy, the Medicare, Medicaid system. So I think it was very, it has, it's well-intentioned, but I have talked to social workers who have caseloads of like 40 people and they can't do all the psychosocial support that they want to and are able to give that the chaplains, you know, I've heard there's one chaplain in an entire hospice business group. And so he couldn't do and go to all the, the facilities and the individual's homes that he wanted to. So I think it's, it's how we are set up how hospice is set up, it really has limited them into the vastness of care that they can provide. So that's kind of the, this void that doulas are able to fill. So when people ask me, well, how are you different than hospice? I'm different on a couple reasons. One is people can seek me out and utilize me whenever they want to sign up for hospice, there's a lot of regulations that you need to meet to be able to sign into hospice. But for me, you can use me whenever. I mean, I've actually done workshops with people with no life limiting illness or disease process other than a human being and have done legacy work and vigil planning. I would say as far as my clients go, the vast majority probably over 80%. It's the picture where they have a life-limiting illness or terminal disease. They know that cure is off the table, but they might be receiving palliative treatments to extend the life that they have as long as they can have. So they're otherwise functioning in the in society. You'd never know that they were you know, facing their own mortality directly. And so they asked me to come and as one of my clients said, okay, I want to own this. Like, I know this is going to happen to me. And so what, I've never done this before. <laughs> and I need, I need direction. I need support. What do I need to be thinking about? What do I want to be? What should I be doing? Um, she said, I want to get busy with finishing up and wrapping up the work around dying so I can just focus on living the rest of my life that I have left. Mm. And so I think that was such a great quote that that she said to me. And that is by far most of my clients. They're the ones who... They have energy and they want to own it. They want to take control back, if you will. They, um, I, I frequently use metaphors and one is, you know, we've been writing in our book of life for however, however many chapters we are alive. And they're the ones who say, I want to make sure I write this last chapter with my own hand, my own pen, and not give it over to family members or loved ones or the medical community or my, you know, my PCP, but I want to write it and I need, I need your help. And so those are the people that find me. So I'm working with these clients and families for sometimes almost over a year before they decline and they enter into hospice. And so I like to say that, you know, I work as a team with hospice. I am, I'm like the eyes and the ears on the ground. Uh, I know who the movers and shakers are in the family and the clients are, can give me um, consent, written consent that if need be, I can talk to um, hospice for them. There've been some times when they're really confused on medicines and doulas are not nurses. We don't give medical advice. Uh, 
I should say, I am a nurse, but I don't come to the right. bedside with my nurse's hat on. <laughs> um, you know, we are, we are not grief counselors or therapists, but I am able to make sure that they utilize the functions that hospice has in place to, hey, let's call the nurse out and let's, let's make sure that they help you really understand these medicines or, uh, you know, once, do you mind if I call the social worker and let her know some of the issues you'll, you know, your family's having, they're like, oh my gosh, that'd be so helpful. So as long as I have written consent to do this, I want to make sure I say that first, um, that I can kind of be the eyes and the ears on the ground for hospice. The other difference is I am fee for service. So very much like a birthing doula, we get paid independently. I am not part of a hospice. I am not aligned with a hospice. I am in Richmond, Virginia, and we have almost 26 hospices in my area, which is an, a huge amount. And so I, I am not aligned with one, but when people seek my services out, and they can use and utilize any hospice. Uh, and most of the hospices in my area are familiar with me now and are aware of what I do and kind of where I fit into the care team. Most people, I would guess, are terrified of dying. Right. Like we all just kind of walk around so afraid of it that we don't even want to think about it. We don't want to talk about it like but but you you contend and and you've seen this happen that we can if we if we work at it, get to a place where we have accepted the fact that it's going to happen. I mean, the the difference between me right now and one of your clients is they know when they're going to die in most cases. I don't, mm -hmm. but we're all going to die. We all kind of need to get to this place of accepting it. So that is possible. It can happen, can it? It can. And, but I always will say there's a caveat to that acceptance to a point. And, and I say that even with myself, you know, I have written my vigil plan. I talk openly to my family about my death, my death and dying, what I want, my deathbed. But as my, you know, all my clients are my teachers, they accept it to a point. And then when it actually is happening, it becomes a whole nother moment for them to sit with. But yes, we can do it a lot better and accept it to way better than we are right now to the point we can acknowledge it. You know, I like to say that what we don't understand, what we're afraid to talk about in our culture becomes taboo. And it, and it gets this momentum and becomes this large, larger than life, the shadow we don't, that has its own energy to it. But when we have the courage to shine a light in that little corner and talk about death, it gives it like four dimensions and you're able to pick it up and you're able to say, okay, like, I'm not looking forward to this. I'm not saying I want this to happen anytime soon, but I get it a little bit. It's, it's, I can hold it in my hand. Um, you know, so many people, and this is just my, my, my belief is we are born with death yet. So many in our pe people in our culture see death as this entity that's like waiting and looming at the end of a journey, just, you know, plotting and waiting for us. And I don't see death that way. I see death born with us just as life is born with us. And it walks next to us. It's life is this little kinetic toddler energy that, <laughs> you know, runs around, what's this, what's this? And death is just this quiet, is the quiet that gives purpose to this life of running around here and there and doing this, that, and the other. And because it's such a quiet entity, people, it's so easy to make it walk behind you. So it, you can't see it. It's not in your periphery and you can pretend it doesn't exist. But if you can 
allow death to walk next to you where you realize it's in your periphery, I feel like it it would give all of us a better a better living experience. It and I think it allows us to treat our fellow humans a little better as well, realizing that everybody else is going to go through this too. Definitely. I am I have a, a very good friend who um recently was diagnosed with a very rare kind of cancer. Um, and she, there was a surgery, but there, you know, there's never with this kind of cancer, they're, they're never really sure if, if it's, if they got everything or if it'll come back. And, uh, the statistics were that people with her diagnosis generally lived about 10 years, right? Mm -hmm. And so we, we had this conversation and, you know, we talked about how she was dealing with it and, um, you know, where her where her head was with it and everything. And and honestly, knowing that you you have that you have to live with that, you know, being getting something like that put right in front of you, it really reshapes everything. It reshapes the way you, you know, the things you think about. It reshapes whether or not, you know what, I haven't spent the money on that Audible subscription, but <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and do that because life really is short, you know, and just little things little little indulgences big big moments of conversations with family all of those things it really we talked about how it's the kind of gift that nobody really ever wants to get but once you get it you recognize it's a gift to kind of have that um that put in front of you to deal with and address Yes, it definitely puts things in perspective. You know, so many people say, gosh, how do you do what you do? Isn't it just so depressing? And in my response is honestly, no, it makes, it makes my life so much more vivid because you see, you see that we are going to all die and that can't be changed. So to take ownership of it, to support somebody having the end of life that they want is to me beautiful. I certainly am so sad for the loved ones left behind and the heartache and the grief that will remain with them for the rest of their lives. But to quote one of Jerry Gladder, who was the vice president of Anelda, you know, she mentioned that, you know, life and death are not opposites. Life and birth are opposites under this big umbrella of under the big umbrella of life is birth and death. And talking about death is just the last couple chapters and birth are the, you know, the first few chapters. And what if we treated birth like we treat death? You know, we're, we're not going to tell you what's happening. We're not going to, there's no books. There's certainly no parties or showers. And even when it's happening, we're going to deny it that it's happening and what the outcomes would be. That's what we're doing with dying. So I think that's my motivation for doing this work is shedding light that yes, death is sad. And that is nothing, that is something that nobody can change. And I I never want to make any illusion that I could make it anything other than that. However, there's so much more pain and anxiety that we put on our shoulders during the process that doesn't need to be there, but it is to get to that point. You have to acknowledge what's happening, which is hard for a lot of people. Yeah, definitely. Um, I know that you said there there is like you said there's a lot of beauty to it and there's a lot of sadness to it. Um y- how do you keep some degree or can you keep some degree of emotional separation? I mean, does it ever get to just be too much? 
a lot of self-care, a lot Mm -hmm. of, I think while I've only been an end of life doula for five years, being a nurse for the 22 plus has been on the job training. You know, I didn't get that kind of training in nursing school, but you know, it, it is, it's this, I always describe it as this thin veil where I am sitting with you. I am, I am not turning away in all the muck of the person who that is experiencing the end of life or the family or both, but acknowledging that this is their journey. This is what their life was supposed to look like. And, you know, another metaphor I have is, you know, it is their quicksand that they are sitting in, that they are dealing with. And I'm not going to get in their quicksand, but I will sit next to them and I will hold their hand and I'm not leaving. And so it's just this thin veil of being, of having empathy sincere empathy of being and tapping into something that I experienced while I have never died. I can certainly tap into what it feels like to be hopeless, to tap into grief. So I can tap into that and sit human to human with no outcome in mind, but just to hear the person. And I think when I just acknowledge and remind myself that these are our different journeys, they are separated, it helps. But a lot of self-care, um, support. I have other doulas that I am that I either work with or, or I'm collegial with that we can I can talk about or go over issues I'm having. I am a nature girl, going out and hiking, hugging trees. Like that's what grounds me. So those types of things of knowing myself have helped, and also I think knowing why I got into this field. I have since become a, a trainer for an elder, so I also now train other doulas. And the first step, I think, in self-care is truly understanding why did I come into this field and to do a lot of self-awareness. And only then can you really understand from what you are serving from. Because you certainly don't want to hurt yourself while helping somebody else. That's not sustainable. Right. And well, right. It's not good for anybody. Um, So I guess that kind of a three-part question, if someone is thinking, you know, I I might want to do this. This sounds like something I might want to do. Uh, what are the next steps? What and what makes somebody a good candidate for this job? I guess is probably one of the things I want to make sure we we talk about too. And then, can you? I mean, obviously, it is a service for a fee. And you know, I don't expect you to dive into the cost of it. But can somebody actually earn a living doing this? Okay, so. Three great questions. I'll try to tackle each. If I forget, remind me. Yeah, I will. Okay. You want to make sure, kind of tagging on to what I just said, is where are you coming from a place of? And I have, I know a lot of birthing doulas who we speak often about, just a a doula in general. And people sometimes get into birthing doula because they've had a horrible birthing experience and they want to change how other women experience birthing. And when you come in with that energy, It's coming in with you and as the focus. So I put that towards the end of life. If people have had horrible personal experiences with death and dying and they want to, you know, change how others experience it, they have a, a lot of work they need to do to make sure they're not coming in with themselves in the center of this is the experience I want you to have because it's not your experience to have. You know, we recommend that if you have had a loss within the last year or a deep loss that you have not worked through, you need to do your own work to make sure that you have come to um, a solid foundation from which to serve, that you aren't still being triggered by different things that you could bring into a situation with a client. 
that would be unhealthy. Um, but characteristics of someone good, you know, we train and we talk about all these wonderful things. Like we can do vigil plans and legacy work and create rituals, which are fabulous and amazing things. But I have found in the end, the dying want most is someone just to listen to them, mm. to not solve problems, to not buffer pain, be it physical or emotional or spiritual. We don't do that really great in our culture. We don't listen actively. And so to have somebody come to sit next to somebody who's working through the end of life, as you can imagine, there's lots of emotions. And then to just sit there and hold that space for them, but not fix it, not offer them solutions is really hard. And so if you, if somebody is the kind of person that likes to hear themselves talk a lot, this would not be a good place for you. Right. Um, we need people who just listen and then have the courage to ask maybe deeper questions. I had a client who was 40 years old and had three children and she was dying and she was angry. Oh, she was angry you know, that she was not going to be around for all the things that her children were going to experience in life. And I just sat in that anger with her and I asked her more questions about it. So again, it's a, a doula's job is not to pull somebody through a door. It's not to have any agenda in mind. It is to sit there and bear witness almost to what they're experiencing. So um, as far as fee for service, it really depends on where you live as far as the cost. Sometimes I say um, you need to look at your, you know, where you live. So, you know, a birthing doula in Manhattan is going to charge a lot different than a birthing doula in Western Virginia. So, you know, take into account what your area can support in terms of birthing doula rates, life coaches and um, counselors, what they charge. And that kind of gives you an idea of what can be supported. You know, this is also, I believe everybody should have a supported death, not just those with privilege. So I always encourage doulas to have pro bono cases, to work on sliding scales. Um, and so I try my best to always make sure I am walking that walk as well. So I am always doing pro bono cases as, as well as fee for service. So basically, it, as far as what you would charge, just kind of look around and see what, because like you said, there's probably not a lot of death doulas in your area that you can compare with. So look at counselors or look at birth doulas and things like that um, mm -hmm. to kind of base a fee structure. Now, is there anything else that I should ask you, but I haven't? Oh my gosh, we could probably be here for a couple of hours. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, um, thinking specifically that... about the profession, I guess, because that's really with the angle with this. So, you know, as far as the job goes, as the profession goes, what what else should I ask? The only few things that come to mind is some people call us death doulas and some people call us end of life doulas. I don't mind either. I think some people like the shock value of a death doula, um, but the exception of, you know, so the word death denotes a moment. I think we need tell people about death. It's, it's a moment. It's a last breath where end of life can be days, weeks, months, years. And so I think I normally hedge to saying end of life doula for that reason, but they are the same. So some people ask, are they the same or different? So I'm saying they're the same. Um, and the only other thing I like to point out, you know, is I hope one day that there are no 
there are no need for anybody to hire a death doula or an end of life doula because we will have given it back to our communities, back to our cultures. We'll have returned the knowledge that was taken from us on how to support our loved ones. You know, everybody, you know, hundreds of years ago, everybody had a role and they knew what to do. You mean when, when somebody was dying? Thank you. Yeah, yes. When someone was dying. Um, you know, men would start digging the grave. They would build the, the, the casket or the coffin. Women would, women would gather herbs. They would start making food. And they would touch their, their dying. They would touch their, the, their dead. And that has a lot of purpose. So I hope that in years to come, there's no need for people to look for, for, for end-of-life doulas like myself. But until then, we are here. We are here to walk alongside. We are here to educate um, family members how to touch, how to care for their dying so it can be returned back to humanity again. So if somebody's interested in becoming a death doula or um, in hiring a death doula, where should they go to get more info? So ANELDA, which is an International End of Life Doula Association, but the acronym is INELDA.org. They have a doula directory, which you can find um, doulas that have been trained with ANELDA by state. Um, that's a great place to start. There are a number of other organizations and people that do training. Um, so that's normally where I encourage people to go first. It must really be quite an honor, honestly, for someone to invite you into that part of their life. Very well said. It is an honor. It is an intimate time to share with a family and loved ones. Um, but as I said, you know, my, I, as I view my job, my job is to teach the family and the loved ones to labor death. You know, just as a birthing doula wouldn't, you know, rub the laboring mom's back or, you know, dance with her during a contraction. Um, the beauty is in the partner doing that work as is in the dying process, the beauty is in the family providing that work for their loved one. So, so it is, it's, it is an honor to watch it happen and unfold. Yeah. Well, Shelby, thank you. Thank you for uh, being a guest on uh, the thing you do podcast. Thanks for telling us about the thing you do. And uh, yeah, that was very enlightening for sure. Really sweet conversation. Thanks so much. Well, thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening to this episode of The Thing You Do. I hope you found this conversation with Shelby as profound as I did. I'm not sure I'm ready to become a death doula just yet, but she's given me a lot to think about. I'll make sure to put a link to Inelda in the show notes so that you can find out more if you're interested. Also, remember to subscribe to The Thing You Do podcast wherever you listen to podcasts so that you never miss a new episode. And I'd be so thankful if you'd take just a second to leave a review. There are over one million podcasts out there. And one of the easiest ways to get noticed, to kind of stand out in the crowd, is to have a lot of reviews. So that would be a tremendous help. And finally, stay in touch. You can connect with me and other Thing You Do listeners on the Facebook group. You'll also get the scoop about upcoming guests and episodes there. You'll find it at facebook.com forward slash thing you do. And if you have a comment, an idea for an episode, if you want to tell me about the thing you do or you just want to say, hey, well, shoot me an email at Tammy at thingyoudo.net or leave a message at 405-355-8264. That also happens to spell Tammy, T-A-M-I, 
355-TAMMY. Thanks again. I hope you'll join me next time for The Thing You Do Podcast. <laughs>